I just want to uh, briefly uh, bring you up to speed with where we are in terms of Bible teaching here at Emerald Presbyterian Church. I, I gave a bit of an update during notices, but uh, during term one uh, of this year, we began preaching from the first book of the Bible uh, in Genesis, and by about Easter time, we got up to chapter 11, which w- turned out to be really a pretty neat place to break. At the end of chapter 11, uh, we get introduced to Abraham, uh, and then he doesn't die until chapter 25, and so there's sort of a block there that's worth sort of doing on its own merits and, and at its own pace. So we're going to pause for a bit, but uh, my my suspicion at this stage is that we'll come back to Genesis in term 3, uh, and we'll do something different in term 2. This term, starting next week, we'll do 1 Timothy, uh, and like I said, um, I'd encourage you to read it in your own time. Uh, you will see, as you even as you read it for yourself, uh, that uh, that... Uh, 1 Timothy uh, sort of does a job of assessing what a church should be about. It's, a, it's actually uh, an intensely practical guide. Uh, anyone could read it and get something from it, and I encourage you to do so. Uh, but this year, like I said, during the holidays, we've been picking up this theme of the Kingdom of God because uh, it is, it, it, the, the news of the Kingdom of God is Jesus' own language that he adopted to summarise his mission. Uh, Our Bible's New Testament starts with four books that each retell the events of Jesus' life. Matthew, which we read from today, Mark, Luke and John. And those first three in particular, Matthew, Mark and Luke, but John in his own way as well, they lay particularly thick this emphasis of Jesus' life and teaching that the summary of his message and mission is the coming of the Kingdom of God. And the week before Easter... We looked at the story of Palm Sunday, when Jesus triumphantly entered Jerusalem just days before his crucifixion and after several years of his public life demonstrating his authority through his teaching and his miraculous signs, but mostly uh, really only referring to his kingship or his chosenness or his messiahness in private, more private sort of settings with his disciples. Now, that was sort of his pattern over a few years. Finally, on that week before uh, Easter, or the Passover, as it was then, uh, Jesus uh, very self-consciously and deliberately announced himself to the people as a king. Uh, He deliberately fulfilled a prophecy that Jerusalem's king would would enter Jerusalem's gates riding on a donkey. And so Jesus sought out a donkey so that people would recognise that he was declaring himself in that to be king. And then he gets killed. Uh, And all hope and expectation that's followed him evaporates. And what's worse is that in his death, all this talk of kingdom is exactly the stuff that gets used against him in his death. So it's the crime that he's accused of, is of, you know, uh, as of competing with Caesar. Uh, and, and so he's, uh, he's, he's put to death on those grounds. Uh, it's, a, it's a state crime. Uh, it is the content of the charge that's written above him on his cross. This is the king of the Jews, written sort of in this smarmy, sort of ironic kind of way to make fun of both him and the Jews. This was the Romans' attempt to, uh, to have a crack as they label him the king of the Jews. Behold your king, we're putting him to death in front of you. Uh, the soldiers as well, uh, as they, as they uh, were preparing Jesus for crucifixion, they dressed him up like a king to mock him. 
They put a crown on his head, but they twisted it from thorns. Uh, they placed a robe on his back and they, and they bowed down in, in sort of mock worship towards him. And then even the thieves that were killed on either side of him were saying, you're a king, save yourself and save us. So this language of kingdom and kingship was, was thick through Jesus' crucifixion and it was, it was what was used against him. And then Jesus is raised several days later and you might think, after all of this talk of coming kingdoms, etc., that when Jesus is raised from the dead, that this would be a particularly dramatic event. You know, Jesus seems to finally be owning his role as king and now he's risen again gloriously and he would swiftly and powerfully and absolutely carry out justice against his enemies. But instead, he seems to actually, like strangely, just continue the way things were. And we, we've entered a new era where our Lord has, is risen and is alive and yet, by and large, life is going to look similar under this new reign, this new regime. He seems to come uh, to continue his pattern of a fairly private existence, uh, appearing only to his most faithful followers before disappearing again. But in these words at the end of Matthew 28, we see that Jesus' message, uh, his message that God's kingdom has come and that he himself is the king, that this message isn't altered uh, at all by the facts of his death or even his resurrection. What's kind of funny is that although with Jesus' resurrection we enter a whole new era, God's priorities and even God's methods remain almost identical as before. That uh, in, in God's kingdom, uh, sorry, God's kingdom does not ordinarily grow by conquest or by coercion, but mainly through persuasion, through teaching and by example, and by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so most of the time this morning, we're going to uh, be spent, uh, we'll be spent this morning looking at Jesus' last recorded words there in verses 18, 19 and 20. Uh, And uh, we'll summarise it like this. There is a claim that only Christ can make when he says in verse 18 that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There is a command that only Christ can give, where he says in verse 19, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And finally, there is a comfort that only Christ can provide. In verse 20, he says, behold, I am with you. I'll be perfectly honest with you. I listened to a sermon on this passage during the week and I've shamelessly borrowed that outline, although not, the, not how I describe them uh, for myself. And I'd be happy to point you to the talk that I listened to. It was a good one uh, by uh, a Scottish man in America named Alistair Begg. Uh, but before we, uh, we get to uh, this outline of claim, command and comfort, let me do a little bit of context. Uh, Lauren read to us this morning from Psalm 2. If you don't know this already, you'll learn soon enough that Psalm number 2 is one of my favourite psalms. Uh, it paints a picture... Uh, of the world's most powerful people gathering together to plot and scheme against God, to overthrow God as the global king and to become like God themselves. And so in Psalm 2, uh, it says, The nations rage, the peoples 
plot. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And that's precisely the picture that we get in the closing chapters of the Gospels that tell us uh, Jesus' life. The rulers and authorities are plotting and scheming to get rid of Jesus out of jealousy. And even after Jesus is raised, here what we read today in Matthew 28, the religious leaders themselves, they know now without doubt that they got it wrong and that Jesus is Lord, but they gather again to scheme against him. Uh, perhaps you saw in verse 12 of Matthew 28, the chief priests assembled with the elders and they take counsel. That's the same word as in Psalm 2. They, uh, the chief priests assembled with the elders and they take counsel and they conspire to bribe the guards of the tomb and even the governor, if necessary, to keep their secret about Jesus' resurrection and the appearance of this angel. Uh, the terrible irony is that in, ver- in Psalm 2 from the Old Testament, it's the nations who are the ones raging and plotting against God and his anointed one. Uh, and that word nations is usually shorthand for other nations, others, uh, enemies in particular. But in the Gospels, it's the Jewish people themselves and their own leaders in particular who fail to recognise their own Messiah and who plot and scheme to have him overthrown. And then to sort of come back to Psalm 2 again, uh, in Psalm 2, God is looking down on the schemes and God is listening in to their whispers and instead of being threatened by it, he's amused by it. It says in verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And in Matthew 28, it does almost feel like God is laughing at the ones who are scheming against him. When Jesus' tomb, guarded by strong, trained soldiers, is approached by two afraid and faithful women, the angel of the Lord appears like lightning and rolls away the stone, and it's the guards whose knees knock and are frozen stiff with fear. And it's the women who are spoken to kindly and who move away uh, with fear and courage and joy having sort of engaged in this conversation with the angel. Not to mention the fact that Jesus, who was laughed at while they killed him, gets the last laugh by being raised again and vindicated by God the Father. And then back in Psalm 2 again, the Father laughs in heaven while he says, Behold, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. And he says to his son, the King, in verse 7, You are my son, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. In other words, all authority in heaven and on earth I give to my son. Which brings us now to the claim that Jesus makes about himself. Having been risen from the dead in verse 8, Jesus says, a claim that only he can make, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It is hard to picture a more sweeping statement that could be made. It's sweeping in the first place and then it's very particular at the end. All authority to me, just one. And as, as if it weren't enough to say all authority full stop in heaven and on earth, given to just one, to me, Jesus says. 
I should say that this isn't a new claim of Jesus's, by the way. Uh, He's been saying this all along. For example, in Matthew's Gospel earlier, chapter 11, he says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. So it's, it's not the resurrection that changes this, by the way. Jesus already had authority. He already possessed that eternally before the world began. Indeed, uh, the Bible says uh, that the world was made through him. He pre-existed the world. So the resurrection doesn't give anything new to Jesus' authority, but it is another confirmation of the fact that he has authority. And it's pretty hard to argue with if you can accept that he rose again. Uh, And although the language of authority isn't exactly the same as uh, using the word of a king or a kingdom, that is exactly what it's describing, uh, that Jesus is king. But this isn't a claim that any old king would make, by the way. Uh, This is a claim that only Christ could make. Because most kings, not that I know any privately, but I suspect that most kings would recognise that they are that they are just one sovereign among many other sovereigns. Their authority extends only as far as the borders of their own realm. Now, they might want to extend that. They might even fight to extend it. But they know that that there's an edge. There's a limit to their reign. But Jesus says with all self-assuredness that he is king of everything and everyone in heaven and on earth. All authority is his. It just is his. So let that sink in that Jesus is Lord. He is King. That means at least that all earthly governments make and enforce laws only with authority borrowed from him. It also means that for you as an individual, your own personal autonomy, uh, that is your own uh, control and rule over your own body, well, that isn't even as far-reaching as you've been taught. Since you belong thoroughly to him who made you. And so true freedom can only come from submitting to that fact. Uh, It also means, the fact that Jesus is Lord also means, and this is hard and good at the same time, The fact that Jesus is Lord means that the trials and the hardships that you face, as cruel and harmful as they might sometimes be, they occur according to his wisdom and his will for your good. So that you might be purified and improved even by fire and taste and see that in this world God alone is good. Now if Jesus has... All authority in heaven and on earth, that must have some implications, mustn't it? It must. And we also see that uh, it has implications uh, because we see that it has implications because Jesus links his statement, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, to his next statement with the word therefore in the middle. Uh, the, The word therefore means there are implications now, listen. One of the implications often linked to Jesus' authority is his authority to judge. Uh, Which means, sorry, by the way, when I say Jesus has been given authority to judge, that means to both forgive and condemn. Judgment isn't only the bad one. Uh, Judgments can sometimes come down pleasantly. There is forgiveness and condemnation. And all of that is in Jesus' hands and Jesus' hands alone over 
every person in the earth. It means that every person sits under Christ's judgment with either a tick or a cross above their head. Uh, it means that those who are in, with you know the tick above their head, those who are in aren't necessarily good, but they're forgiven. They get grace and a gift of eternal life. Also, on the flip side, those who are out of his favour, well, they're, they're not necessarily worse, but their own sins are held against them justly and they get the judgment they deserve. And as I understand it, it really is that black and white. And Jesus' absolute authority means that at the end of the day, the religion you're brought up with and the country that you're born in are irrelevant. You are judged by Jesus, by his measure. And the stakes really are as high as heaven and hell. But the good news is that Jesus is a funny kind of a judge uh, in the really good way. Uh, Jesus stepped down off uh, from his seat as judge to be punished himself for the sins of those he came to judge. He was killed on the cross. That's, what he, that's why he did it. And then, having been risen again, he takes his place again as judge and even as your lawyer, your defence attorney, advocating for you, for the in, advocating for the innocence of everyone who loves him and receives his gift. In fact, it's sort of in this courtroom scene that I'm painting. Jesus is the judge. He's also your defence. In some ways, he's, he's also you. He takes your place in the dock. As if to say, who, me? Guilty? I've done nothing wrong. Look at my righteous life. And he, and he gifts his righteousness to you. By his righteousness and innocence, the guilty can go free. And yet, sadly, for those who don't accept it, they remain condemned. And so we come now to that therefore, that linking word of Christ's claim of absolute authority. Uh, the therefore is this, the command that only Christ can give. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Uh, can you see how uh, that all nations word, by the way, all nations aspect in particular, is the obvious implication of Jesus' global authority? All nations must submit to him. Uh, they will at, at the very least on judgment day. And so therefore, let us try and bring him in before that day. Teaching them, baptising them. So to take uh, Christianity to, the, to other nations through the work of uh, missionaries... Uh, to take uh, Christianity through missions into other nations and cultures is absolutely the essential business of God's kingdom so that everyone would have an opportunity to meet Jesus and receive his grace. Now, cross-cultural mission can be done badly. Uh, every good thing can be done badly. That doesn't make the thing bad. It just means that you need to do it wisely and lovingly and well. Missions shouldn't be mainly about colonialism or conquest or coercion. Those things are mistakes and they run against the grain of what Jesus actually explicitly commands when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples, not slaves, make disciples of all nations. 
it's kind of a that word even uh, make disciples it's kind of a giveaway to the strange nature of Christ's kingdom because an earthly king might push in on the nations to make slaves or to uh, acquire resources but Jesus's kingdom is about making disciples who are essentially trainees or apprentices or students or lifelong learners which would be why one of the two tools that he gives in this endeavour after baptism is teaching. We are to teach. And so those who follow him must be ones who learn, disciples, apprentices, students. Christ's kingdom doesn't advance with the sword. Uh, It's not about the erasure of national distinctives or culture. Uh, It's not how we normally think about kingdoms advancing though, is it? Unfortunately, if we reflect on elements of, uh, of the Crusades or colonialism, it's how people, um, uh, people have, un- unfortunately, people have applied the expansion of Christ's kingdom in negative ways, with bad expressions. But the truth has been here all along, unchanged from Jesus' mouth and with his authority that his kingdom should grow through discipleship, through teaching and training. Uh, Those two things he says, uh, initiating people into the kingdom with baptism, uh, which is a public uh, washing with water as we leave the flesh behind, so to speak, and accept Jesus' purity and forgiveness. That's a pretty gentle kind of initiation, really, isn't it? Uh, A splash or a dunk of some water. And then growing people through instruction and the word, it says teaching them to observe Jesus' commands. Now, the link between Jesus' claim of authority and his command to disciple is at least twofold. On the one hand, if Jesus has all authority, then people fall under his rule, and so we must make disciples by implication. Otherwise, the ones who are lost will perish. Uh, on the other hand, if Jesus, has, if Jesus has all authority and he issues a command, then we must obey the command. Can you see how on the one hand, uh, if he has all authority, then everyone must become disciples. They really should. But on the other hand, if he has all authority and he issues a command, we, we should also come along with that command to obey, to, uh, to grow more disciples. We must all busy ourselves about uh, seeing more people hear and respond to the truth of Jesus' reign and the gift of his grace. A final statement up there is Jesus gives a comfort that only Christ can provide. His comfort is this. He says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Uh, this was the promise, by the way, that, uh, that came through the prophet Isaiah, uh, that the virgin would conceive and have a son, and he would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Behold, I am with you, Jesus says. Now that is a comfort uh, that we would do well to remember every day, that he is with us. He is with you. When you wake, God is with me. When you look in the mirror, God is with me. When you kick a goal, God is with me. When things are tough, God is with me. When you're tempted to sin, God is with me. But notice here, 
in this passage, although all of those are good and true and valuable uh, implications of the fact that God is with you, or Christ is with us. Notice that in this passage, Jesus particularly links the comfort of his presence with the command that he may, says, gives to make disciples. So I take that to mean something like this. God is with you all the time. Christ, sorry. Jesus Christ is with you all the time. But there is a measure of his blessing and presence that you may never know unless you're engaged deliberately in making disciples. And look, making disciples is scary. In every age and context, the thought of sharing your faith or teaching about Jesus, in every single age and context, it is scary. It is at very least socially scary, isn't it? Because it puts relationships on the line to try to persuade a person of Christianity. And look, it is good to care about the health of relationships. It is good to want to be liked uh, by your neighbours, even by uh, and, and particularly by people who don't know Christ. In fact, uh, as you read the Bible, you, you will learn that it's even a worthwhile strategy, um, so to speak, uh, to gain a good reputation so that people won't have a word to say against you and so they may also turn to recognise the hope that you have in Christ and might turn to him. That you might gain a good reputation with your love for one another and with the integrity that you live with each day. And so it's good to care about what people might think of you in as far as what people might think of you impacts what they might think of your faith and the one that you follow. And yet there is a point at which it becomes more important. The stakes are higher to not tell a person at all about Jesus. Because you risk uh, perhaps not losing a friendship, but losing a friend. Making disciples is scary in every age and every context, uh, but there are also particular contexts in which it's scary because it's physically and economically dangerous because of persecution. And we seem in Australia to be touching on the front edge of something like that right now and and who knows how far that might go now there is there is in in this command of jesus uh just to backtrack to the command to go and make disciples of all nations and then teaching them to do all that i've commanded you there seems to be this uh a circle or a cycle that that's expected to repeat that we were that making disciples means outputting people who not only become disciples but people who, as they are taught to obey all that Christ commands, would also obey this command to make more disciples. And then those disciples would be taught to make more disciples, who would be taught and trained to make more disciples. Which means, at least, that we as a, as a church have a role to equip you in the chair to be doing this, to be making disciples yourself, training Uh, that we as a church ought to be training you and providing opportunities for you to do that. Well, let me say this at least. Every week on a Sunday morning at 9.30, we hold a public gathering that I think is pretty friendly and welcoming, where anyone can come and hear the gospel and be invited to respond. 
So let me encourage you at least this. Think of one person. Think of one person who in your books is the least likely to ever accept an invitation to come to church. The person who you think there is just no way they would come. They've, they've said they wouldn't. I know they wouldn't. And I want you to pray for that person, that they might come to church with you one day. And I want you, as you pray for them, to imagine what you might say to them to invite them to come to church, because that's actually a helpful step. And then do one more thing. Think of another friend, because I bet you've got one of these as well, who might actually come if you asked them. Think of a friend who, if you said to them, hey, would you like to come to church with me one week? You'd actually kind of already know that probably they'd say yes, that they might appreciate the invite. And do the same for that person. Pray for them. Uh, And imagine what you would need to say to ask them or what you might need to do to help make it easy. Maybe pick them up, give them a lift. Converting people to believe in and follow Christ is work... Finally, to sum up, it is work that only God can do by his spirit. You can't make a person a Christian. But, although it's work that finally only God can do by his spirit, he does command us to do the work. And he invites us to participate. Maybe see it more as an invitation than a command. It's his principal method to use his people to create more people for himself through his obedient disciples. So uh, let's pray uh, in closing. Let's pray to him that he would make disciples. Uh, Let's pray that he would make us to be disciples who would work with him to make disciples uh, and that we would do it to the glory of God the Father uh, in the name of Jesus the Son and with the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, you gave us uh, your son, Jesus, uh, who became one of us, who lived a life uh, that we could never live in all perfection and holiness and purity, uh, who gave his life as a ransom for us so that we uh, could be forgiven for our sins and set free. And who you raised to life again. And who sits and reigns with you now. To whom belongs all authority in heaven and on earth. God, we pray uh, for the nations to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. We pray that you will help us to do Uh, what we must do privately to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. We pray that we would uh, uh, belong to uh, and uh, and work on our households so that uh, each of us would inhabit a space where it is the norm to submit to Jesus Christ in everything. And we pray uh, that those people who are far off from you, either... uh, 
far away from us geographically or far away from you in their spirit, we pray that you will draw them close. We pray that you will do the work of making disciples, uh, that you will uh, save souls, that you will pierce darkness and soften hearts. And we pray that you will do it with us, that you will equip us and embolden us with the comfort uh, of your presence to do the work that we must do uh, and to do it under you and to do it for your glory. We pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.